At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. A man who is his own lawyer has a fool for a client. A man who has a non-lawyer as his lawyer has a fool in the mirror. Trump not only missed the chance to avoid his arrest and prosecution for compromising national security because he ignored his lawyers and instead relied on the legal guidance of a liberal arts major who isn't a lawyer named Tom Fitton, But he is clearly still ignoring his lawyers and instead relying on this Tom Fitton, whose only connection to the law is that the right wing nuisance factory he runs is named, quote, Judicial Watch. And there is reason to believe Trump relied on Fitton again last night when he demanded that the Department of Justice give him back the documents he stole, the ones that could send him to jail for the rest of his life. At 10.35 a.m. Eastern yesterday, Judicial Watch tweeted a Wall Street Journal quote from an attorney insisting that, quote, the Presidential Records Act allows the president to decide what records to return and what records to keep at the end of his presidency. The Archives and Records Administration can't do anything about it. I know about it because I'm the lawyer who lost the Clinton sock drawer case. A few hours later, Fitton retweeted that. And then at 5.10 p.m. Eastern, Trump posted, quote, So now that everyone understands that the Presidential Records Act plus the Clinton Sox case totally exonerated me, when are they going to drop all charges against me, apologize, and return everything that was illegally taken? The answer, as any lawyer or sane layperson could tell you, is they're not. The Presidential Records Act does not exonerate Trump. Nobody understands the specious claims of exoneration. The Clinton Sox case is an irrelevant red herring, and it's not even called the Clinton Sox case. 
They aren't dropping the charges against Trump. Nothing was illegally taken and nothing is being returned to him. But Trump isn't listening to that. He is listening to Tom Fitton, pretend lawyer. At 7.20 p.m. Eastern, Fitton went on Newsmax and said Trump had cooperated fully with the archives, had returned documents. Fitton implied Trump returned all the documents without ever actually saying all. Fitton claimed that Trump was indicted because, quote, he didn't search properly or hid documents from his own lawyers. You know, I didn't think there was any persuasive evidence of that, so Trump fully cooperated. Fitton then invoked the Clinton sock drawer case, getting the name correct, and he said it decisively proved that, quote, there was nothing anyone could do about a president who took records with them and designated them as personal. And of course, that is also wildly untrue. The President Clinton case was brought by Fitton's company in 2009. The government had decided that some recordings for a Clinton biography were indeed Clinton's personal property. Judicial Watch sued to get them declared government property so it could then claim Clinton had broken a law. The judge laughed Judicial Watch out of court, so in Tom Fitton's world, Judicial Watch lost that case, not because Judicial Watch was wrong on the law and they suck, but because no president could ever be kept from keeping anything and everything for all time. You can picture this Fitton explaining this to Trump and Trump's beady little eyes glazing over to the point where he couldn't even remember the full name of the case, the Clinton sock drawer case, because at five whole words, it was way too long to imprint on Trump's malformed mind. And Trump can still only remember four of the words, and he keeps calling it the Clinton socks case because Clinton had a cat named Socks, and Trump's brain does not work properly. Besides which, he was distracted by what Fitton was saying. The only thing he really wanted to hear, that he could keep the documents, that the documents were his, 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 his. Quote, Trump time and again rejected the advice from lawyers and advisors who urged him to cooperate, wrote the Washington Post Wednesday in its story about the attorney he had hired for a flat $3 million, Christopher Keis, who last October told Trump to make a deal with the Justice Department, whereby he would really return all the documents in exchange for a guarantee there'd be no charges, quote, and instead took the advice Tom Fitton offered, advisors said. Trump would often cite Fitton to others, and Fitton told some of Trump's lawyers that Trump could keep the documents. If, like me, you were thrown over last weekend when Politico reported that Trump did not think he would take a plea deal in this case, but, quote, he left open the possibility of doing so where they pay me some damages, unquote, I think I've got a pretty good idea who did not tell him that that was not the kind of plea deal they were going to offer. At the core of all this, of course is the statement Trump has repeated again and again in private and in public, and he made it again at 5.10 p.m. yesterday on social media. Those are his documents. When will you give back his documents to him? They are his, not yours, not government's. No law makes difference. He held them, have name on them, put them in box. Not that box, this box. This is existential to Trump. 
To quote the Bugs Bunny cartoon about Daffy Duck and the treasure of Alibaba, it's mine, you understand? Mine, all mine. Get back in there. Down, down, down. Go, go, go. Mine, mine, mine. If none of this still makes any sense to you, congratulations. You have passed the first screening test for good mental health. The New York Times yesterday explained in depth the reference to Trump's beautiful mind boxes that when it appeared in the indictment document mystified so many while the rest of us immediately thought, ah, the Russell Crowe movie. It was a reference, wrote the Times, to the title of a book and movie depicting the life of John F. Nash Jr., the mathematician with schizophrenia, played in the film by Russell Crowe, who covered his office with newspaper clippings believing they held a Russian code he needed to crack. The phrase had a specific connotation. The aides employed it, the Times wrote, to capture a type of organized chaos that Mr. Trump insisted on, the collection and transportation of a blizzard of newspapers and official documents that he kept close and that seemed to give him a sense of security. One former White House official who was granted anonymity to describe the situation said that while the materials were disorganized, Mr. Trump would notice if somebody had riffled through them or they were not arranged in a particular way, it was, the person said, how, quote, his mind worked, unquote. Oh, boy. In other words, Trump kept dozens of boxes of stuff, dozens and dozens and dozens of boxes of stuff, all of it seemingly packed randomly, yet he could tell you in which box any specific document or artifact could be located and crazier still if somebody took say the 79th item from the top in the 23rd box but they moved it so it became the 129th item from the top in that box trump would know trump would know that his papers had been messed with quote he could point to specific boxes that he wanted to take with him on Air Force One when he was traveling and declined to take others, the Times added, appearing aware of the contents inside the boxes he chose, both officials said. I have been saying this and writing this since the year 2016 as a rhetorical question. Could Trump pass a sanity test? This is not just scary, though, on the sanity, insanity level. And it's plenty scary on that level. There's a reason that the 58th word in the Times piece is, quote, schizophrenia. It is also curtains for Trump because this literally obsessive compulsive awareness of exactly where each one of thousands of documents would be inside dozens and dozens of boxes means there is not one chance Trump took any document out of the White House by accident, and not one chance Trump didn't know where those documents were at Mar-a-Lago, and not one chance Trump didn't know where the ones he hid from the government and then from his attorney wound up. In that situation, the defendant is going to need a really, really good lawyer to have any chance of not dying in prison. Instead, he has Tom Fitton. It's mine, you understand. Mine, all mine. Get back in there. Down, down, down. Go, go, go. Mine, mine, mine. There is other Trump business to review as well. Some of it important. Some of it just weird. Though not that weird. Human events. 
like Judicial Watch, an outfit seemingly created to harass President Clinton in the 90s, reported that after his arraignment, but before his speech at Bedminster Tuesday night, Trump, quote, attempted to call into Fox News in the 8 p.m. block. The request was denied by Fox. Me? I'm thinking Trump called collect. Forbes has done other math, quote, from 2017 to 2022, when Trump had access to classified documents, initially as president and ultimately as a formal official living at the club, the Mar-a-Lago people applied for temporary work permits as servers, cooks, and housekeepers for just a few foreign nationals who probably weren't screened for anything besides their skills at serving, cooking, and housekeeping. Just a few flitting in and out of Mar-a-Lago in and out of Florida, in and out of the United States, all of them coming and going and perfectly nice people. Only a few, only 380, only 380 foreign national temp workers at Mar-a-Lago. From TPM, another hint that someday we will learn the full extent of Rudy Giuliani's weirdness, but not yet. He has been sued for defamation by the Georgia election workers Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss. And thanks to filings in that case, TPM has discovered that during his part of one of the many Trump coup attempts in 2020, Giuliani used the email address rhelen0528 at Gmail. A spokesman explains Helen was the name of Rudy's late mother. He does not explain why another email address has turned up in the filings, lucy3413 at hushmail.com, but I would refer you to that videotape that we all here in New York, we knew about, but apparently is news elsewhere. It's from a skit for a roast of Giuliani at a charity event in the year 2000, and in it, Giuliani is dressed in full drag. I mean, full drag and using a falsetto and he has fake big breasts and a guy comes in and kisses Giuliani between the fake breasts and the guy is Donald Trump. And if you don't believe me, go look it up on YouTube. And what was that again about schizophrenia? And from the through the looking glass world of the GOP in which whatever Trump is accused of, Biden has had to have done it first and worst. The FBI whistleblower Burisma foreign oligarch 17 audio recordings rumor report allegation tip. This continues to melt in gooey wonder all over the hands of the hillbilly F. Lee Bailey representative Jamie Comer. As Sean Hannity skeptically asked Comer about hearing the recordings, or at least confirming that they exist, or at least confirming that the oligarch exists, and yes, I said Hannity skeptically, Comer admitted last night on Fox that nobody has heard from the oligarch in three years. Three years, no contact with the guy who allegedly has the tape that allegedly says this and allegedly is of these people and allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. And Comer still had a better time on TV than did Senator Ron Johnson on Newsmax. The blonde news model teed Johnson up perfectly on this non-story, non-reality, and Johnson whiffed. If indeed the 17 audio tapes uh, exist, it would be in effect really a smoking gun for uh, the big guy. So I want to ask you first, uh, Senator, do you think they exist? And if yes, how to obtain them? We don't know. And, uh, you know, Senator Grassley has never said they exist. He just said that there's an FBI 
a report on a confidential human source, and that confidential human source says that uh, the person we were talking to said that he taped. Uh, he recorded uh, 17 times, 15 times with Hunter, twice with uh, Joe Biden, but we don't know. That's one ugly Johnson right there. And lastly, in the least surprising Trump story of all time, at least to anybody who knew him before, we have the coda to his carefully staged fake post-indictment and birthday party at the Cuban bakery Versailles in Miami on Tuesday afternoon. Turns out it was not as carefully staged as it might have been. As cameras rolled and Trump apologists fawned and they sang him happy birthday and only one journalist actually asked a question, Trump suddenly shouted, Food for everyone! Food for everyone! Food for everyone. You'll notice he did not add on me because it wasn't. The Miami New Times reporting that moments after that shout, Trump left the Versailles bakery without paying a dime. It was Ron Filipkowski who said what many of us were thinking, that the last person to promise the ordinary people free food at Versailles and then stick them with the bill was Marie Antoinette. Look how good that turned out for her. And yes, there are two different pronunciations. In France, it's Versailles or Versailles. In Miami, it's Versailles. Also of interest here, the wheels are coming off at Fox. They're continuing outrage at a new pride flag at the White House, which they say is there to encourage grooming and pedophilia. They're actually reporting this. Turns out Fox News did not know that the identical flag was used last year at a Fox corporate event. Oops. Just say oops and get out. That's next. This is Countdown. Food for everyone. Food for At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. 
my crazy friend. This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, spiking the football. Everybody knows what that means. Everybody knows the term as used in football and as used in life. The football player generally credited with inventing spiking the football has died. Homer Jones was an underappreciated star with the worst of the New York Giants teams ever in the late 1960s. He averaged 22.3 yards per catch, which is still the NFL record. Quote, I had always said that when I made my first touchdown, I was going to throw the ball in the stands. Homer Jones said about the day on October 17, 1965, when he pulled down an Earl Morrill throw for an 89-yard TD against Philadelphia. They changed the rules in the offseason to, I think, a $500 fine for throwing the ball into the stands. And as I crossed the goal line, my intention had always been to throw that ball into the stands, but I thought about the $500 and I threw it on the ground. So that was the original spike right there. Spiking the football was designed to save $500. Homer Jones was 82. From baseball, shock after remarks from Commissioner Rob Manfred about the Oakland, maybe Las Vegas A's. And if Rob Manfred can still shock you, he's really said something stupid. In fact, he said a lot of things that are something stupid. Understand that for at least five years, the A's have dragged their feet and starved their franchise in order to justify moving out of town. But that's not how Rob Manfred sees it. Asked about the fans, Manfred told reporters yesterday, quote, I feel sorry for the fans in Oakland. I do not like this outcome. I understand why they feel the way they do. He then suddenly pivoted. The real question is, what is it Oakland was prepared to do? There is no Oakland offer, okay? They never got to a point where they had a plan to build a stadium, which is just simply Rob Manfred lying, flat out lying. Oakland repeatedly present an A's owner John Fisher with offers to build a new stadium. Asked about unanimous studies of stadium construction, proving that new ballparks do not generate jobs or economic growth, Manfred answered, I love academics. They're great. Take the areas where baseball stadiums had been built. Look at what was around Truist Park in Atlanta before that was built. Academics can say whatever they want. A, Rob Manfred transferred from Lemoyne College to Cornell and then got a law degree at Harvard, and he never fails to mention this. Never. So bad news, Rob. Academics, you are a product of academics. Secondly, one economist said he could show me four hours worth of formulas proving that new ballparks do not create growth. They just shift jobs and businesses from one part of an area or city to another part of the same area or city. But he said this is the easier explanation. If new ballparks actually generated more money for anybody, team owners would build all the new ballparks themselves and keep the money. That's what owners do. But the real shock in what Rob Manfred said was when he insulted the Oakland fans who were trying to keep their team in their city. They held a reverse boycott Tuesday night and got 27,759 people to show up to see the worst team in baseball in probably the last 15 years. Previous attendance in Oakland's Tuesday night games this season had been 4,000. 
Rob Manfred's reaction? I mean, it was great. It's great to see what is this year almost an average Major League Baseball crowd in the facility for one night. That's a great thing. It's one thing to be condescending if you're smart, which Rob Manfred isn't. It's one thing to be arrogant if you do your job well, which Rob Manfred isn't. Uh, the one thing to be snarky, of course, if you're honest, which Rob Manfred isn't. But let's just say he is all of those things. If the A's do move out of Oakland, there will be an entire fan base there without any team. A baseball fan base that as recently as 2014 drew 2 million fans in one season to a crap shack stadium. Now, if the A's move, you're going to lose a lot of those people forever. But that crap shack ballpark is exactly 15 miles from another Major League Baseball stadium with another Major League team called the San Francisco Giants. And ordinarily, you would be at least pretending to show those fans some empathy in Oakland because the San Francisco Giants are down 900,000 fans a year from their glory days just a decade ago. And maybe, maybe you could convince some of those disgruntled, orphaned A's fans to keep buying your product over there in San Francisco, which is what you would try to do if you were smart. As noted above, the commissioner of baseball isn't. Thank you, Nancy Faust. can't stop Nancy Faust. You can only hope to contain her. Golf. Told you so. They're not phrasing it this way, but the sale of the PGA Golf Tour to the investment arm of the Saudi Arabian government will be held up at least a year. The Department of Justice has reportedly advised the PGA it will investigate the so-called merger with Live Golf on antitrust grounds. The DOJ was already investigating just the PGA on antitrust grounds. The alleged merger was announced last week, and since then, not only has a Senate subcommittee on Homeland Security announced a probe, now the DOJ has announced its separate probe. European antitrust investigators are considering yet a third probe, but the commissioner of the PGA Tour has virtually disappeared due to a, quote, medical situation, which required him to take a leave of absence just before the start of the U.S. Open in L.A. yesterday. Now, a top golf writer is suggesting the commissioner who thought the PGA Live Saudi deal would be well received in golf circles. He says the commissioner will not resume his duties. Nobody is saying what ails Commissioner Jay Monahan, but I'm betting on a case of tertiary surprise. Since he is dealing with the Saudis, I guess we have to assume there is the possibility that's what ailing Commissioner Jay Monahan is uh, bone sawing machines. Still ahead on Countdown, it would make a classic scene in a great movie. I hope just by reading it, I can do it justice. Fridays with Thurber and the night the bed fell. Next. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. 
The Bronze, right-wing troll and advocate for a transgender purge, Michael Knowles, the former, quote, actor, unquote, who portrayed a gay man having sex in a movie with other men. Downloads must be down for him because he's now announced that, quote, the pride flag is offensive to all normal people, unquote, and should be banned, quote, because it's evil and degenerate, and, quote, I want our civilization to be as socially conservative as we were in 1220, before all modern ideology started corroding our civilization. So, the year 1220, he actually said 1220. Where were you, and what did you enjoy on January 1st, 1220? Before Europeans came to America, and when life expectancy in Europe was 30 to 35 years. So you heard him. Everybody off the continent, go home. And Knowles, by the way, with that age span, 30 to 35 years life expectancy, Knowles is 33. So wrap it up, boy, you're done. Runner-up, Pat Sajak, I told you so. Did I tell you so? Do you see what happens? Do you see what happens, Larry? Pat Sajak announced the other day he's retiring from Wheel of Fortune, and everybody issued maudlin, weepy farewells. And I said, good. I'm glad he's gone. And I said, he's a schmuck. And what do we find out from Channel 4 in Detroit? Pat Sajak is now the chairman of the Board of Trustees of Hillsdale College in Michigan. Sound familiar? Well, Hillsdale takes no government money, it abides by no government regulations, and when it was challenged on its diversity, its president said people had come to the campus looking for, quote, dark ones. Ginny Thomas ran the speakers series at Hillsdale. Clarence Thomas gave the commencement one year. Ron DeSantis and Mike Pence and Christy Nome have been pushing the charter prep schools Hillsdale is trying to establish around the country. And the one in South Dakota would teach about the World War II service of conservative South Dakota Governor Joe Foss, but not the World War II service of, and he was a genuine hero, liberal South Dakota Senator George McGovern. Pat Sajak is chairman of the board of trustees of this indoctrination factory. But the good news is Hillsdale's influence is still so on the periphery that he has been chairman since 2019, and most people only found out about it yesterday. But the winners, Fox quote news unquote with a twofer, still running with this pride flag at the White House nonsense, suggesting there was quote, a controversial new transgender flag that promotes grooming and pedophilia. And it had a coming out party at the White House. They actually put this on and kept pounding this story. Punchline, Fox took the identical flag and wrapped it around a giant version of its corporate logo at a Fox corporate event last year. Big giant FOX letters several feet high wrapped in exactly the same flag that Fox says promotes grooming and pedophilia. Fox learned nothing from the Dominion case. The network and the company need to be metaphorically burned to the ground. Happily, happily, they seem to be doing that themselves. Remember the split screen of President Biden and Trump speaking simultaneously Tuesday night, one from exile in Jersey, the other from the White House, the one where Brian Kilmeade, the dope, introduced Trump as the president. The one where the full screen graphic read for 27 seconds, quote, wannabe dictator speaks at the White House after having his political rival arrested. Somebody asked about it at the White House press briefing the next day while Fox was carrying the White House press briefing live and Fox cut away from the answer so they could do a story about a giant crocodile in a swimming pool at a house in Florida. 
Fox has ousted the producer who wrote it. The Daily Beast and separately Tucker Carlson reporting that Alexander McCaskill wrote that Chiron, and now he's Kai gone. Alexander McCaskill used to be Carlson's managing editor and senior producer. Carlson says McCaskill had been there 10 years, and Carlson claims he was thought to be one of the most capable people in the building. But quoting Carlson, the women who run the network panicked. How McCaskill could not have seen this coming, how Fox could not have seen this coming, I don't know. He is mentioned in the Abby Grossberg lawsuit against Fox for misogyny and cute anti-Semitism. At least before they fired him, they reduced him to writing the freaking Chirons. Fox News and a partial score. Biden administration two, Fox News nothing. Today's worst persons in the world. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is getting you ready for the 2024 NFL Draft. I'm your host, Andrew Levy, and I'll be delivering two shows a week to make sure you're caught up on the very latest NFL news, including every free agency move and how it changes the draft needs of your favorite team. Draft experts and talent scouts, mock drafts, and a few shock drafts, too. NFL Total Access, the podcast, is already on the clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the Ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I have argued before that James Thurber is the greatest American humorist, and it dawns on me that the argument is not unlike the idea that Shohei Otani of the Los Angeles Angels is almost automatically the most valuable player in baseball each year because he is an all-star hitter and an all-star pitcher in the same body. James Thurber was a brilliant writer, and in his spare time, he was an equally brilliant, almost avant-garde artist in the same body. His simple drawings depict the most complex of emotions and comedic situations. His dogs are immortal. And then there were his captions. Well, I can't do anything with his drawings in a podcast, so I'll just read. And I will read you now in this episode what is probably his most famous story. From My Life in Hard Times, The Night the Bed Fell, by James Thurber. I suppose... 
that the high water mark of my youth in Columbus, Ohio, was the night the bed fell on my father. It makes a better recitation unless, as some friends of mine have said, one has heard it five or six times than it does a piece of writing, for it is almost necessary to throw furniture around, shake doors, and bark like a dog to lend the proper atmosphere and verisimilitude to what is admittedly a somewhat incredible tale. Still, it did take place. It happened then that my father had decided to sleep in the attic one night to be away where he could think. My mother opposed the notion strongly because she said the old wooden bed up there was unsafe, it was wobbly, and the heavy headboard would crash down on father's head in case the bed fell and kill him. There was no dissuading him, however, and at a quarter past ten he closed the attic door behind him and went up the narrow, twisting stairs. We later heard ominous creakings as he crawled into bed. Grandfather, who usually slept in the attic bed when he was with us, had disappeared some days before. On those occasions, he was usually gone six or eight days and returned growling and out of temper with the news that the Federal Union was run by a passel of blockheads and that the Army of the Potomac didn't have any more chance than a fiddler's bitch. We had visiting us at the time a nervous first cousin of mine named Briggs Beale, who believed that he was likely to cease breathing when he was asleep. It was his feeling that if he were not awakened every hour during the night, he might die of suffocation. He had been accustomed to setting an alarm clock to ring at intervals until morning, but I persuaded him to abandon this. He slept in my room, and I told him that I was such a light sleeper that if anybody quit breathing in the same room with me, I would wake instantly. He tested me the first night, which I had suspected he would, by holding his breath after my regular breathing had convinced him I was asleep. I was not asleep, however, and called to him. This seemed to allay his fears a little, but he took the precaution of putting a glass of spirits of camphor on a little table at the head of his bed. In case I didn't arouse him until he was almost gone, he said, he would sniff the camphor, a powerful reviver. Briggs was not the only member of his family who had his crotchets. Old Aunt Melissa Beale, who could whistle like a man with two fingers in her mouth, suffered under the premonition that she was destined to die on South High Street because she had been born on South High Street and married on South High Street. Then there was Aunt Sarah Schoaf, who never went to bed at night without the fear that a burglar was going to get in and blow chloroform under her door through a tube. To avert this calamity, for she was in greater dread of anesthetics than of losing her household goods, she always piled her money, silverware, and other valuables in a neat stack just outside her bedroom, with a note reading, this is all I have, please take it and do not use your chloroform, as this is all I have. Aunt Gracie Schof also had a burglar phobia, but she met it with more fortitude. She was confident that burglars had been getting into her house every night for 40 years. The fact that she never missed anything was to her no proof to the contrary. She always claimed that she scared them off before they could take anything by throwing shoes down the hallway. When she went to bed, she piled where she could get at them handily all the shoes there were about her house. Five minutes after she had turned off the light, she would sit up in bed and say, Hark! Her husband, 
who had learned to ignore the whole situation as long ago as 1903, would either be sound asleep or pretend to be sound asleep. In either case, he would not respond to her tugging and pulling so that presently she would arise, tiptoe to the door, open it slightly, and heave a shoe down the hall in one direction and its mate down the hall in the other direction. Some nights she threw them all. Some nights only a couple of pair. But I am straying from the remarkable incidents that took place during the night that the bed fell on father. By midnight, we were all in bed. The layout of the rooms and the disposition of their occupants is important to an understanding of what later occurred. In the front room upstairs, just under father's attic bedroom, were my mother and my brother Herman, who sometimes sang in his sleep, usually marching through Georgia or onward Christian soldiers. Briggs Beale and myself were in a room adjoining this one. My brother Roy was in a room across the hall from ours. Our bull terrier Rex slept in the hall. My bed was an army cot, one of those affairs which are made wide enough to sleep on comfortably only by putting up flat with the middle section the two sides which ordinarily hang down like the sideboards of a drop leaf table. When these sides are up, it is perilous to roll too far toward the edge. For then the cot is likely to tip completely over, bringing the whole bed down on top of one with a tremendous banging crash. This, in fact, is precisely what happened about two o'clock in the morning. It was my mother who, in recalling the scene later, first referred to it as the night the bed fell on your father. Always a deep sleeper and slow to arouse, I had lied to Briggs. I was at first unconscious of what had happened when the iron cot rolled me onto the floor and toppled over on me. It left me still warmly bundled up and unhurt, for the bed rested above me like a canopy. Hence I did not wake up, only reached the edge of consciousness and went back. The racket, however, instantly awakened my mother in the next room, who came to the immediate conclusion that her worst dread was realized. The big wooden bed upstairs had fallen on father. She therefore screamed, let's go to your poor father. It was this shout rather than the noise of my cot falling that awakened Herman in the same room with her. He thought that mother had become for no apparent reason hysterical. You're all right, mama, he shouted, trying to calm her. They exchanged shout for shout for perhaps 10 seconds. Let's go to your poor father. And you're all right. That woke up Briggs. By this time, I was conscious of what was going on in a vague way, but did not yet realize that I was under my bed instead of on it. Briggs, awakening in the midst of loud shouts of fear and apprehension, came to the quick conclusion that he was suffocating and that we were all trying to bring him out. With a low moan, he grasped the glass of camphor at the head of his bed, and instead of sniffing it, he poured it over himself. The room reeked of camphor. Ah, choked Briggs like a drowning man, for he had almost succeeded in stopping his breath under the deluge of pungent spirits. He leaped out of bed and groped toward the open window, but he came up against one that was closed. With his hand, he beat out the glass, and I could hear it crash and tinkle on the alleyway below. It was at this juncture that I, in trying to get up, had the uncanny sensation of feeling my bed above me. 
foggy with sleep, I now suspected in my turn that the whole uproar was being made in a frantic endeavor to extricate me from what must be an unheard of and perilous situation. Get me out of this, I bawled. Get me out. I think I had the nightmarish belief that I was entombed in a mine. Gasped Briggs, floundering in his camphor. By this time, my mother, still shouting, pursued by Herman, still shouting, was trying to open the door to the attic in order to go up and get my father's body out of the wreckage. The door was stuck, however, and would not yield. Her frantic pulls on it only added to the general banging and confusion. Roy and the dog were now up, the one shouting questions, the other barking. Father, farthest away and soundest sleeper of all, had by this time been awakened by the battering on the attic door. He decided that the house was on fire. I'm coming, I'm coming, he wailed in a slow, sleepy voice. It took him many minutes to regain full consciousness. My mother, still believing he was caught under the bed, detected in his I'm coming the mournful, resigned note of one who is preparing to meet his maker. He's dying, she shouted. I'm all right, Briggs yelled to reassure her. I'm all right. He still believed that it was his own closeness to death that was worrying mother. I found at last the light switch in my room, unlocked the door, and Briggs and I joined the others at the attic door. The dog, who never did like Briggs, jumped for him, assuming that he was the culprit in whatever was going on, and Roy had to throw Rex and hold him. We could hear Father crawling out of the bed upstairs. Roy pulled the attic door open with a mighty jerk, and Father came down the stairs, sleepy and irritable, but safe and sound. My mother began to weep when she saw him. Rex began to howl. What in the name of God is going on here? Asked Father. The situation was finally put together like a giant jigsaw puzzle. Father caught a cold from prowling around in his bare feet, but there were no other bad results. I'm glad, said Mother, who always looked on the bright side of things, that your grandfather wasn't here. done all the damage I can do here. Countdown has come to you from the Vin Scully studio at the world headquarters of the Olderman Broadcasting Empire in New York. Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olderman theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever, even when I talk over her. Our announcer today was my friend Tony Kornheiser. Everything else is pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 892nd day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him again while we still can. The next scheduled Countdown is Monday. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Food for everyone. Food for everyone. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.